0: everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations this conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. In this conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Shema Hamilton, who is a lecturer in Criminology and Justice Studies at RMIT University. Her research focuses on violence against women and children and her expertise lies in policing, family violence, sexual offending and forensic interviewing. In this conversation, we're talking about her work specifically on police attitudes to sexual offenses forensic interviewing and how police can improve investigative interviews if you have any feedback on this episode or the podcast in general please leave a review get in touch via social media all our contact details are in the podcast description this has been a really difficult year but feedback from the listeners and your comments and reviews have really kept us going thank you so much for that and we plan on keeping going in the new year and bringing more of these conversations so please keep tuning in and please keep listening and telling us what you think there are links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence in the podcast description as well and i hope everyone listening is safe and is at home and is taking care of themselves so thank you so much again for listening and there's a lot of exciting updates coming in the new year, so keep an eye out for those on our social media as well. But that's everything from me, now back to this conversation with Gemma and her incredible research. So let's dive in.
1: Hello Gemma. welcome to Talking Research.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: It's, it's wonderful to have you. So to get started, tell us about yourself. How would you describe yourself or how would you introduce yourself uh, in a way that you'd like to be introduced?
2: Sure so I'm a lecturer in criminology and justice studies at RMIT University in Melbourne. Um, mm. I've got a background in forensic psychology so my PhD looked at police interviewing um, children in cases of sexual abuse uh, and then post phd my research is looked more broadly at policing, family violence, uh, and sexual violence. Um, and, yeah, I guess more personally, I'm also a mum of two very young children, so I've got a three-year-old and a six-month-old. Um, so, yeah, they're keeping me very busy at the moment.
1: Oh, I, I, I I, mean, I say this all the time, but I find it really surprising when you know, parents of children just manage to get anything done. I think it's, it's just completely incomprehensible to me. Uh, yeah, really glad to have you here today. And we're going to talk about your work on police attitudes to sexual offence cases in Australia. So before we get down to that, can you tell us about what we know about sexual violence in Australia and how, you know, just general information and you know, how likely sexual offences are to be prosecuted. So I guess when we say sexual offences, we mean uh, offences related to sexual harassment, sexual assault, right? Yeah, rape and sexual assault are
2: the main ways, yeah, they're measured when we look at prosecution and conviction, right? Um, And, yeah, so in Australia, um, we know that one in five women have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. Um, we obviously know that figures are, you know, significantly underreported, um, and we sort of estimate that about 12 to 20% of victims report to police. We do know that reports of sexual assaults to police in Australia have increased over the last decade, uh, but while they have increased, um, prosecution and conviction rates have remained really low. Um, so it's different in different jurisdictions in Australia, uh, but generally we see about 15 to 25% of sexual offence incidents um, reported to police resulting in charges being laid um, and criminal mm-hmm. proceedings being instigated. Right. And then, yeah, like once they've been prosecuted, we also see low conviction rates. So it's only about 12%. Um, of sexual offenses
1: um, receive a conviction rate in australia hmm. and And this is something that we talk about and that comes up a lot, I guess when we talk about prosecution and uh, reporting that there are estimates of instances of sexual offenses are much, much higher than what is actually reported, and that's partly because most sexual Assault cases and most cases of uh, sexual violence uh, are are perpetrated by someone that the victim knows and, you know, uh, is not able to report or is discouraged from reporting because of that reason as opposed to being perpetrated by a stranger in a dark alley. Exactly.
0: Um,
1: So so I think it's just useful to flag that up again. So you've looked at how investigators how their attitudes in sexual offence cases what that's like and how that affects the way that they deal with the case so tell us about this study
2: sure so this study was conducted as part of my colleague dr patrick tidmarsh's phd research um and what this study did is it examined whether specialist training um could have an impact on investigators' attitudes in sexual offence cases. Um, So Australian police officers, they participated in a four-week intensive training program that focused on the dynamics of sexual offending. Uh, And then officers completed questionnaires immediately after, uh, sorry, before, immediately after, and nine to 12 months following the training. Uh, And they were presented with scenarios uh, involving adult and child complainants um, with varying levels of evidence, so strong, weak, and ambiguous. Uh, And then they rated their confidence that the case would be approved for prosecution. Um, They rated their confidence of the likelihood that that case would receive a guilty verdict. Um, And they also rated the level of responsibility attributed to the victim, um, so this was tapping into victim blaming attitude. And then, yeah, the findings. So we found like following training, investigators became more confident in case approvals um, and more confident that the case would receive a guilty verdict, um, and they were less likely to attribute responsibility to victims. Um, and they also demonstrated better understanding of sexual offense dynamic. Uh, and these effects Ratings of victim responsibility and guilty verdicts were maintained 9 to 12 months post-training, but we did see a drop off in their confidence in case approvals after working in the field.
1: Right. First thing that comes to mind is, well, you know, you've mentioned that most cases, most of such cases don't actually make it to trial and that is what we call the attrition rate right so the cases that are reported don't actually end up being you know don't actually end up being prosecuted so why is this rate so high for rape cases yes yeah, so there's a whole
2: host of reasons we know the attrition rate so the drop off rate is particularly high at the police investigative stage um and this is for a number of reasons so it might be that the police Um, are not able to identify or locate a suspect. It might be that the victim draws their complaint, um, which is, you know, understandable for a whole range of reasons as well. Um, it might be that there's not enough evidence to charge a suspect or the police perceive that there's not enough evidence to charge a suspect, which we know is, you know, really notoriously difficult in sexual offence cases. Um, you know, by, the nature of um, a lot of sexual offending we know that a lot of um, incidents occur in private so there's often no witnesses the abuse and often there's not a lot of physical evidence um, that actually proves whether the sex was consensual or not um, so we do know it's really difficult um, to gather a lot of evidence in these cases uh, and then another Potential explanation for why we see such a high attrition rate here at the police investigative stage is this idea that police might hold misconceptions about rape and sexual abuse victim survivors, um, or in other words, they might believe rape myths, and this might impact their decision-making about whether to proceed with an investigation or recommend prosecution.
1: And rape myths are essentially these ideas about socially held beliefs about what rape looks like or you know that you're more likely to be raped by a stranger in a dark alley than by someone you know and that you know if you were drinking you are more likely to be raped so things like that so just negative conceptions about survivors and really damaging beliefs that in that they end up being part of Know, the prosecution framework because they're held by investigators and often jury members and judges as well. Exactly,
2: yeah. Yeah, so things like, yeah, if when police are, um, they might be thinking, oh, why did this person not report immediately mm-hmm. um, or why did they not fight off the uh, offender, you know, things like this, they might, you know, subscribe to these rape myths and, yeah, potentially mm-hmm. that does have an impact on their decision-making. And that was a big part of what, um, in our study, the mm. training really helped to dispel some of those myths and teach um, the officers about, um, you know, the real factual information about sexual offending and, you know, understanding um, why someone might not fight off an offender and understanding why they might not. Um, report immediately. So trying to get that broader understanding of behaviors that might be perceived to be counterintuitive.
1: Right. So before I ask you about the training, I wanted to ask, you know, we know that these police attitudes end up contributing to the attrition rates in these cases. But what, what else do we know about these attitudes? And, you know, what else do we know about how it affects their case decision making?
2: Yeah, so there's not a lot of research about police attitudes and sexual offence cases in Australia, um, particularly regards to the prevalence of what's often referred to in the literature as rape misacceptance. Um, we know it's really difficult to measure, um, mm. particularly around this idea of when you give you know participants a questionnaire to rate certain statements, we might see this thing called a social desirability effect. So, you know, they might just put down the answer um, that they think, you know, we want to see and the one that might be perceived to be better rather than reflecting their true um, attitudes. Yeah. So, you know, this is obviously a problem we have more broadly with trying to measure um, people's attitudes. Um, but what we do from the research is police hold similar levels of rape, misacceptance um, compared to other populations in our co- broader community as well. And then the evidence about how police attitudes impact decision-making in sexual offence cases is mixed. Um, so some studies have found that police attitudes about rape and rape victims impact decisions about whether to proceed to prosecution. Um, other studies have found no impact. Uh, and then some have found a significant relationship, but then uh, this has been mediated by other variables. What the research is clearer about is police perceptions of victim credibility uh, and then their decision-making about whether to proceed with a case. Um, So if a victim is perceived as more credible, their case is more likely to be referred for prosecution. Mm. So this is where it gets quite difficult to untangle the two because what we see clearly is that perceptions of victim credibility are influenced by stereotypes around rape and sexual assault. So, for example, there's a study, a Norwegian study, by Blingmo and colleagues, and they found that police judged a victim as more credible when crying in distress um, as opposed to neutral or upbeat. So, you know, this study suggests that stereotypical beliefs about rape victim behaviour influence their judgments of victim credibility
1: right and I wonder how that plays out I mean with you know different demographics so you know if it's if it's black or minority ethnic or indigenous women and you know if it's women from the working class backgrounds I I wonder if those demographics also play into how uh, police workers. Assess their gifts.
2: Yeah. I definitely think, I know there's been some research done, um, that's looked into that. I'm not totally across the findings, um, around those sort of different demographics. Um, mm. but I know, for example, um, there's a really prominent study by Daily and Bo Hours, um, right. who they've looked at rape attrition rates across five different countries um, and they've sort of broken down and looked at um, different, like the attrition rates for different groups of people, um, you know, based on gender and I believe based on other um, factors as well like um, potentially around socioeconomic status and mm. race or ethnicity. Um, so that yeah. would definitely study to look into if listeners yeah. are I'm interested in learning more about the rape attrition rates in different countries. Mm-hmm. I know that study looked at yeah, Australia, Canada, England and Wales, Scotland and the US. Yeah,
1: that that sounds really useful. And I I mean, even I, I feel like I'm quite curious about how even uh, child abuse cases so I I know that those are reported even less but uh you know if, if that's something that also has the same attrition rates do you know about that? Uh, I know
2: that child abuse um, and child sexual abuse has even higher attrition rates compared to adult complainants so in Australia when I said the figure before about kids can range in different jurisdictions between generally we see about 15 to 25 percent of cases being referred for prosecution But child sexual abuse it's more towards the lower end of that um, range. So more around 15%. Um, mm. so yeah, even more difficult, um, to get those cases through the criminal justice system.
1: Yeah. Is it, is it that, sorry, we're digressing a bit, but, um, <laughs> just cu- I'm just curious to, you know, is it because they don't believe that these things happen to children or, uh, you know, they don't believe that these things that that a family member or a family friend is likely to sexually abuse a child. Do do we know why? Yeah, well, we know that um ch- child
2: victims are often perceived as not being credible witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, often there's this myth that children um lie about. Uh, abuse and, you know, and that potentially another parent is brainwashing them and putting this yeah. idea to their head, you know, maybe as vengeful motive towards the other parent. Um, these yeah. are popular narratives we see come up um, in child sexual abuse cases. Um, when really yeah. we know that if you interview children, According to best practice interviewing principles, we know that children um, can make very credible witnesses and they can give us very reliable and accurate information. So, children as young, we we know from studies that children as young as four years old, and even in some studies, three years old, we know can give accurate and reliable information if they're interviewed correctly. And I guess what we Mm -hmm. see from the research is that often. Police don't do an excellent job of interviewing children. We see that they often ask questions that are not best practice and so this can Mm. have a negative impact on children's evidence in sexual abuse cases. And so I think this would be a a key reason why they don't proceed um, and why they don't get referred on um, for prosecution.
1: So what, what do best practice questions look like?
2: Yeah, of course. So best practice questions are open ended questions. Basically, Mm. they want to be able to get information from witnesses in their own words without interrupting them. So first, you always want to start with a very broad question. You know, tell me everything about, you know, this matter. Um, and really, The interviewer should then adopt silence. And what we, another really best practice technique uh, is what we call like facilitators or minimal encouragers. So where they really just guide the interviewee with like things like mm hmm, mm hmm, or, you know, head nodding indications Mm. that they're listening to the interviewee. Um, a technique echoing where you echo back. What the interviewee has just said, the last part of what they've just said to encourage them to keep talking. So, you know, if they said, and then I went to McDonald's, you go, okay, mm mm-hmm. And then you went to McDonald's. So open-ended, paired with minimal encouragers and silent, um, are really the best Mm -hmm. strategy possible. What you really want to avoid, particularly with children, is what we call leading questions. Um, so leading questions are ones that basically incorporate information into them that has not otherwise been mentioned or said by the interviewee. All nice. leading questions can sometimes communicate to the interviewee what response the interviewer wants to hear. So, hmm. or you know, it might the interviewer and and often these are unintentional. So the interviewer might not even realize they're doing it, but just say the interviewer might assume that the crime happened at night time. In their question, they might say something like, "Okay, and then what time at, at you know at night did did this happen?" And by incorporating yeah. that into the question, um, already they've compromised the accuracy of that interviewee's account um, because they've incorporated that information in there. And and you know, and these are the sorts of things that can then undermine. The evidence because um, later down the track defense will you know pick that apart and say well you know this is in- incorrect the only reason this person said this is because the police you know convinced them to say these details you know and what we know is it's really really important that the forensic interview is conducted according to best practice principles and gives the interviewee the best chance possible, to provide, you know, a comprehensive and accurate account because often in sexual offence cases um, the witness's account is the main piece of evidence. Um, and mm-hmm. for some interviewees, particularly for children, it can be used as their evidence in chief. Okay. So it is incredibly important that interviewers are trained in best practice principles and, um, you know, and that they're they're using them. Um, Mm -hmm. And just on that too, like we know um, as well specific questions, so asking, you know, for details what, where, when, how, why, who, these types of questions, you know, might need to be used, but they best practice framework suggests that you use those sorts of questions towards the end of the interview after you've Mm -hmm. given the interviewee a chance initially to provide a free narrative, you know, using open-ended
1: questions. Right, so... Making that space for the interviewee to really talk as much as they, as much as they want to without leading them towards any particular conclusion, but just really facilitating them to share as much as they, they're able to.
2: And it's really, I, I, and just something to note there too, is with forensic interviewing, a lot of the time it is easier said than done. So, you know, when we talk about some of these um, practices, you might be listening and thinking, oh, yeah, that's easy. You know, why don't please do a better job of this? And Mm -hmm. while that's, you know, true, when we actually try to implement some of these questioning strategies, it can be really difficult because a lot of them are not how we usually speak in our everyday life, Um, you know, in everyday conversations, particularly in Western cultures. People usually want to fill silences, you know, we Mm. usually uh, feel awkward by silences and, you know, if the person isn't responding immediately, you know, you might want to fill it with another question um, or, you know, talking. So it takes a lot of practice to be able to just, you know, ask an open-ended question and then to just really sit there and actively listen to an interviewee. Um, and also with forensic interviewing protocols, particularly in sexual offense cases, um, it's going to be really incredibly important that the interviewer builds rapport with the interviewee, you know, so that they actually feel more comfortable, um, disclosing really intimate um, details.
1: Absolutely. And I think what you said about this kind of format not being something that we necessarily do in our day to day lives, I think that's Really bang on. That's really interesting to think about. But there's this this amazing TV show in the. I think it's on Netflix, and it's based on a true story. And it's essentially the journey of how the police investigated a serial rapist. It's called Unbelievable. Yes, yes, yes. Have you seen Yes, it?
2: I've seen it, and yeah, I would definitely recommend listeners watch it yeah i think it does in my opinion i think it does a fantastic portrayal of um you know two very different viewing styles mm. it was you know yeah initially how the police interview that main character yeah. almost in an accused you know in a very yeah. accusatory way almost as if she is the offender yeah. and yeah we we see for sure how that is not constructive at all to the case. And you can see they go into it already not believing her. They already go into it with a narrow frame of mind, mm. whereas certainly um, later in the show that second style of interviewing that the female detective engages in is much more in line with what we would mm. describe as best practice. So she goes into it with an open mind about what's happened um, and you can see she spends a lot of time building rapport with the interviewees. Um, and yeah, you can just see then what a much more positive outcome it has for the overall investigation in the case. Um, when they adopt that style, um, yeah, rather than that initial confrontational sort of style.
1: Mm, yeah. And, and I feel like it was also really good example of how differently the different survivors are treated based on their social background so you know the the protagonist she's she's a 16 17 year old girl who comes from you know she's in the care system and she isn't you know uh the adults don't think of her as you know a a very i don't know how to describe it like she's I guess she has a mind of her own. She's a, she's any normal teenager, but because the adults think that maybe she's a little promiscuous, uh, she's not credible. Uh, you know, her story is not credible and how that reflects even in the police questioning and the police investigation. And, uh, you know, in other instances, when, you know, the, 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 the survivors from her, maybe is older or is from a you know is from a more middle class background they're treated better as well so it's really different to sort of see all of these different variables and you know the concept of credible witness how that they've sort of really shown that in a sense i thought it was really interesting i think it's a great tv series generally but also uh, really relevant to what we're talking about definitely Yeah, so you've spoken about how these specialist training programs for police officers have a level of success in remedying these attitudes, you know, remedying these uh, attitudes that get in the way of the sexual offence cases being prosecuted or, 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 you know, that can have lower attrition rates. So tell us about them and, you know, just sort of, what what they're like, what what you know, what do officers go through in them I and just Yeah, tell us a little bit about them.
2: Uh so at the time of the study that we conducted, um police in Australia or in Victoria um participated in a four week intensive course um that's referred to as the whole story training.
1: Mm.
2: Um so this uh it's approximately ninety-eight hours which is quite intensive compared to other specialist training programs that we've seen in other countries and other places. It's quite intensive. It involves both theoretical components and practical components. Um, So officers will participate in lectures and, you know, do have to complete readings. Um, They participate in, like, question and answer sessions with a guest speaker who is an adult Um, victim survivor of sexual abuse. Um, they have to, they'll analyze courts and interview transcripts. Uh, and they do a lot of, um, practice interviews with role players. Um, so actors. Mm. Um, also they do practical, um, practice interviews with real children, but just in cases of like an innocuous event. Mm. So they get, Children to come down, um, from the local school and, um, to the police academy and then the children watch a magic show and later, um, this will practice, uh, interviewing them about that magic show. Mm. Also, they participate in, they do an activity where they partner up. Oh. Um, and they ask each other about their last sexual experience. Right. And so this kind of activity is meant to demonstrate to them, you know, how uncomfortable it might be for someone to have to share really intimate personal details. Mm. Um, and you know, and that's keeping in mind in that practical exercise, police are likely to be sharing, you know, um, talking about sexual experiences that are consensual. Um, and you know, they might have some, they're likely to have some familiarity with who they're talking to. Um, let alone, you know, in a real scenario where it, you know, it's been a non consensual act with, um, and you know, they might be having to share it to a police officer who they've never met before. So that seems to be a really valuable experience. Mm. Um, and yeah, the whole course, there's really just an overall emphasis on sexual offense dynamic, right. um, and broader relationship details. So really, yeah, like we found that the course was effective in changing police attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, and other studies had found training not to be, um, effective in changing police attitudes. But then, like I mentioned, some of these other training programs, um, are significantly less intensive. So in some cases, only a few hours, um, or in one case, it was just one lecture. Right. So certainly we see that, you know, these, um, this, four-week intensive course um, was really effective for officers and yeah I guess I can talk a little bit more about like the underlying premise Mm -hmm. of um, this whole story framework that underpins the training really the rationale behind it is because traditionally police have focused on really legal elements in their investigations of sexual offenses so things like you know the suspect, the location, um, the act that occurred. Um, and and you know, while these things are obviously incredibly important details to seek in the investigation, what has traditionally been lacking is these broader contextual details and the relationship details between the victim and the offender. And so, you know, and what we see is that then when a when a case might make its way to court. Often jurors and other people involved in the criminal justice system, um, you know, might not understand um, why a victim behaved the way they did. Um, You know, they might perceive the victim's behaviour as counterintuitive, like what we mentioned, you know, if they didn't report the sexual abuse or the sexual assault immediately, or if they didn't, you know, fight off the offender, Mm. Um, what we see the whole story training is if you get those broader relationship details and the broader context that helps to explain you know how the offending occurred um it really helps police other people in the criminal justice system to understand you know why a victim might have behaved the way they did mm. and you know if they can understand how the offender you know might have engaged in the, the grooming behavior Um, and establish a sense of power and control over the victim. So yeah, that's the overall sort of premise of the whole story of training. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we did find that after participating in the training, the police, um, showed a much better understanding of sexual offense dynamics.
1: Right. Right. That's really fascinating. And so, so, so what you're pointing out, pointing at is essentially just, fostering a more holistic understanding of how sexual offenses and sexual violence pans out and focusing on how, what what a survivor goes through and really just embedding it that the, you know, whoever's the defendant is innocent they their proven duty but so is the, you know, whoever's reporting a sexual offense to not assume that they're lying automatically just because they're reporting it. Exactly. And,
2: you know, it really comes down to this idea, you know, sexual offence cases, how you need to prove them, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. And if people are subscribing to, you know, myths and misconceptions around sexual offending, Mm -hmm. um, they might have doubt in their mind already. Whereas if they understand the broader context of, you know, how this happened, right. then, I think you know it, it overall can help to kind of minimize that doubt and yeah absolutely and and hopefully achieve um you know justice for anyone who does want to pursue
1: justice through
2: um the legal system
1: yeah, as you point out it's it is what justice looks like in our current system, you know often it's so important it can be important for. A survivor of a sexual offense to, it can really help them get that closure and, you know, it can have a massive impact on the way they really just live, I imagine.
2: Yeah, it is important. Um, but yeah, we know that the criminal justice system is really failing, um, victim survivors mm. of sexual offenses, um, incredibly in the way that it's currently structured. Or, or you know in the way that it's executed.
1: Yeah, and and I feel like that when we know that often racism and other forms of bigotry are institutionalized in the police and in investigate investigated attitudes. Like from this conversation, one of the things that I am taking is that th- that that sexism also is something that is institutionalized in the police system in the criminal justice system generally. So. I mean I'm just wondering if the if if you know h- how we can proceed on uh keeping that in mind while also looking to remedy these biases
2: yeah well we do know you know from our research we showed that the intensive training is potentially one solution mm. but obviously keeping in mind um you know it, it can be time-consuming and costly. Um, although you know, we would argue that uh, if it's having an effect on investigator attitudes, it would be worth the cost. Mm. As you mentioned, like we know, the attitudes um, can be particularly resistant to change. Mm. Some some um, researchers found that personal characteristics um have an effect on um people's attitudes. So for example, female officers appear to have more positive perceptions of rape victims compared to male their male colleagues. Right. Um, we also know that like education and professional experience um has an impact, so more educated and experienced officers um are less likely to endorse rape myths compared to less educated and experienced officers. Right. So potentially these things might be something but we need to consider at the hiring stage, mm. you know, in the selection process um, when selecting police and, you know, particularly ones who are working um, in, you know, the se- in sexual offence cases. Mm. Um, so potentially that's something we need to consider to filter out people mm. who are just not going to be good at doing work in this area. Yeah. And then, you know, as I mentioned before, like police, we know, hold similar levels of rape myth acceptance compared to other populations. So I think it is important to still keep investing in broader attitudinal change campaigns um, and try and target public attitudes towards rape and sexual assault yeah. um, because then we will, you know, hopefully targeting people before they even enter police work. And So it's what I try and do with my students as well with studying criminology and forensic psychology, you know, Trying to kind of dispel some of these myths and misconceptions um, before people are entering um,
1: these arenas. These are really good, really good recommendations and just so important and so urgent. Something that I usually ask at the start of the episode, but I wanted to ask you how you got into researching sexual violence and before this, as you mentioned, you researched uh, child sexual abuse and. Now you're looking at investigated attitudes to sexual offences. So how did you get into this line of research?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess it all sort of started through my education, through my PhD. And then post-PhD, it was really about, like, networking. I was really lucky to, you know, meet um, and be given some really great opportunities through colleagues um, like Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh, um, Associate Professor Anastasia Powell. Um, and Dr. Antonia Kudara. Dr. Antonia Kudara is someone I did some work with through the Ukrainian Institute of Family Studies. And so it was really just about trying to seek out contacts and opportunities um, because it's always been a big passion of mine. Like I know there's obviously so many injustices in the world, but I think violence against women and children and particularly sexual violence um, it's really just what makes me the most mad. And it's just really what fuels the fire in my belly to want to do something about it.
1: Yeah, that's I I I can relate to that, and yeah, I think I think I think we need I think we all need to pay more attention to that you know fire in our bellies if that makes any sense. But you know, this obviously this resource is really valuable, and you're creating. You're creating work that will have a positive impact and, you know, will help in 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 solving this issue. But is this work potentially emotionally draining? You know, you're investigating some really harrowing topics and, you know, you're coming across these beliefs that are really damaging and you know how damaging they can be. So I'm just wondering if how you man how you balance your emotional well being with your work.
2: Yeah. I mean, look for the most part I find the work rewarding because I feel like I'm trying to do something constructive even if it is just one small piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, but you know, you're right, like at times I do find it uh it can be draining and it can be frustrating. Um, you know, seeing the way that the system is currently working and how it's failing people, and right. um, that can be really frustrating. Um, like for my PhD, I um had to read transcripts of um child sexual abuse cases, and so that was I found that really draining and you know upsetting at times. Mm. Um, so I guess one thing I kind of learned to do um is really just work hard to separate you know work from family life and um my personal life so I'm really strict in that I never work at night time which I know is probably a little bit weird for academics maybe because I know a lot of academics who like to work at night or, or need to work at night um but I'm really strict with just clocking off um and then usually having some sort of routine like Exercising or winding down, um, you know, usually watching like a funny TV show or something. Um, yeah, so just kind of having, um, a routine like that to wind down. And I think, you know, during this global pandemic, how we've got more people than ever working from home. Um, so I think it, it probably, um, is something I would recommend to people, um, to just try and separate work and life and, yeah, be able to Hopefully, try and compartmentalize it, um, to be able to cope with it and be able to continue working in this space.
1: I, I think, I really think we all need to go down that route because, especially as you said, with this pandemic, you know, when work is in our bedrooms and inside the house, it's really hard to draw that boundary. So, last thing I wanted to ask you is, is this one practical piece of advice that you have for? listeners that we can all take on board and we can all do something to prevent sexual violence on our own level so we don't have we don't have to be researching sexual violence or you know working on the front lines just something that all of us can do in our own lives to support survivors better and
2: yeah I think this is a great question um and I think one thing that people could do um, is to try and dispel myths and misconceptions around sexual offending. Um, so this might be through conversations with people or it might be about sharing information through social media. Right. um I know like here in Victoria I helped to work on this um, user-friendly guide um, that's published by Victoria Police and the Australian Institute of Family Studies. Um, it's called Challenging Misconceptions About Sexual Offending. Um, and it's just a really good user-friendly guide that lays out some key myths and misconceptions, and then it gives an accurate and up-to-date um, picture on the research evidence about what we know um, to help dispel some of those myths and misconceptions. So that is something that could be good to read and share. And sorry, this probably does sound like a bit of a plug for myself, but um, I also, my colleague Patrick, Um, Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh and I are also about to publish a paper um, through the Australian Institute of Criminology um, that, again, it outlines some common myths and misconceptions and then presents research to help dispel them. So I think things like that um, are good because they're just little short um, pieces of information, you know, so it's not long academic papers that, you know, people don't have to read through them and trudge through them. It's just kind of short snippets of information that um, are easily shared. Uh, Yeah. The
1: things that you mentioned, we can link them in the episode description. And I'll I'll also put a link to the study that we've been discussing today so that listeners can, you know, read that and find out more about your work and just generally engage more with what you've spoken about, which I'd highly encourage everyone to do. But thank you so much for joining me, Gemma. This was so informative and just really made me aware of the different ways that we can challenge, you know, attitudes that are really harmful and that end up affecting the prosecution process. And yeah, just a really, really amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your amazing work and for making the time to talk to me.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, well done with this podcast. I think you're doing a great job. Oh, thank you.